The storm has passed. Night creeps lightly into dawn. There's a lone figure left on the road, heading into the limitless city, heading home to catch a few hours of shut-eye before waking up, climbing into that same suit and tie, and slipping back to the office where another case awaits him. Twenty episodes in, and we wonder just how well do we know our detective? Why, in the whole of cinema, is he such a singular figure? And what else can possibly await him down the road? The short answer, reinforcing what we touched on at the very start of the season, is that the detective is the stuff of myth. He is Theseus in the labyrinth of Los Angeles. He's Odysseus, just trying to get home. Or get his rug bag, at least. He is Orpheus, braving a criminal underworld, all while we fear and dread that inevitable moment when he will look back. The detective is one of our great modern myths, a flawed but heroic archetype destined to move between realms of gods and men. Myths evolve, they shape to the times, but they endure, and with a cinematic century almost behind him, it's clear the detective isn't going anywhere. The long answer is going to take a bit more time to sort out. Good thing we have one more episode this season set aside just for that. So, pour a glass of whiskey, as, as I did, as I believe Fred has as well, and settle in as we prepare to give our private detective the send-off he deserves. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh... Your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Tristan, first, cheers. We made it to the end of our first season. Cheers. Very excited. This Very excited. Is, we've got, yeah, this is our 20th episode, plus uh, a bunch of side projects, so... Uh, not too bad. Well not done, Fred. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, normally we do these things sober, but this time uh, we decided to join in and uh, pour ourselves a little something to celebrate, having it made made it to the end of uh, twenty episodes. What, a lot, uh, of, a lot of talking. What's your your uh, beverage of choice? Are oh, we... uh, the the dearly departed Irish Channel whiskey from uh, the seven three. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, I I could have done that. I've got plenty of sitting here, but I opted for uh, for some Talisker because uh, I. I enjoy scotch, um, but uh, but our detective's drink choices have kind of evolved throughout the <laughs> the the run of the season too. So I feel like anything can really go at this point. Oh, for sure. Uh, but hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend Tristan Johnson. And tonight we're closing the book. The first book, at least, as we come together to wrap up our season-long exploration of The Private Eye. It's been a long season. We've all covered a lot of ground, a lot of years, and a lot of cases gone horribly awry. It's hard to even begin to pull all that together, but all the same, we're here to give it a try. Yes, indeed. Um, and I guess, uh, I guess let's start with, I don't know, big picture impression? I don't know. What do you take away? Having, having now watched... Uh, dozens of films kind of pulled together uh, to kind of complete a, a more comprehensive vision of, of a cinematic detective. What's it all mean to you, Fred? Watching them all 
like this, it's just really underlined, and this can be very boring if you've been listening to the whole season because I've said it a few times, but that the the important thing about these movies is not the mystery. The important thing is the world. It's the space that the detective moves through. It's the the theme that he's exploring. And in the best ones of these, the resolution of the mystery reinforces the theme of of the world and the types of people he's meeting, but also those people are so interesting that we're glad to have met them along the way, even though they're just uh, often the worst of the worst. I think that's a, a great call out, uh, a reminder that that we are not in any of these movies for the plot. Um, it is it is for the journey. It is for it is for the characters that you that you meet along the way, the spaces that the detective moves through, the whole texture of that world that's being brought together. Um, which I guess is why maybe we can we can pull this into a, a bigger noir discussion. But like that 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 to me is what. Uh, uh, is what noir is like as as we're trying to, trying to pin down what noir is in that that never ending question. It is that world that's built. It is that that space that 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 the in this case detective, but it doesn't have to be a detective moves moves through navigates whoever your your, your film's protagonist is. Um, for me, um, I bring bring to what we we called out in the opening. Here, um, the detective in his best moments is a mythic figure, uh, journeying through cinema history. Um, he is, he is a modern myth. He is a larger than life archetype. Um, and, and seeing him from the, the 30s, 40s really till, till today has just reinforced that vision for me. That's the, that's what I'm walking away with. Um, again, kind of supporting what you just said, Fred, that this is, um, that this is not about the, the story it, itself. This is not about the, the, the particular mystery that's being unraveled. It's about our detective up against all of, um, our, our, our lone protagonist up against all of these other forces that are, are pulling him in every different direction. Yeah. I love you tying it into, yeah, that it is the, American mythic figure, right? As much as the cowboy, as much as the superhero, um, in that all, all three often hinge on single men doing the right thing in a world without moral compass. And all, all three kind of re- reflect the rugged individualism and, uh, uh, classical ideals of masculinity that that so much of a current american culture is founded on and then i think the movies that we watched have then i mean from the get-go have sort of taken in complicated and interesting ways starting with humphrey bogart being you know five foot even and uh a yeah. uh, hundred pounds soaking wet but still looking like the toughest guy in the room all the way up to uh andrew garfield being just a terrible human being and you're like this is this is the best that american masculinity can produce is um but he's also the product of the same power fantasies and feelings of um uh you know privilege and uh something being owed to him that that uh, you know the same instinct that has these noir heroes grabbing a woman and kissing her is is what leads andrew garfield to feel like yeah i can just go 
around LA and <laughs> smell like a skunk, have no job, no future, no prospects. And just every single beautiful woman is going to throw herself at me. Yeah. So uh, it, it's so true. So much is built around, um, around, around that specific, it, that specific sense of uh, like, if you, if you step outside and analyze it, this is a privileged character. This is a, this is a character that is, that is so built upon on white, a white male archetype. And we've seen some deviations from that, um, which have been, which have been welcome. And I hope that I can only hope that we start seeing plenty more, but like this, the, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd fallacy in that, in what we're being presented, right? Like this, this concept of a, of a character with the freedom to move between spaces that, that can exist that can exist in the mansions that can exist in the dive bars um in the in in the back rooms like this character can move through the city and and converse with anyone uh and and yet inherently that's that's something that is a a privilege that is not extended to all of these other characters um it's of course it's presented heroically it's presented as 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 something really unique and singular here but this is this is not something that in its classic form um translates the same way to the characters on the fringes um and but I, even, I, think I mean I I, I totally agree but I think I think it's interesting that even I think that framework is really interesting to then consider the black exploitation films that we looked at because I think Shaft and Trouble Man both do actually are able like one of the things that make them singular as heroes within those narratives is that they have that ability to, you know, it, the movies are not so utopian and, and naive as to act as though they will not be subjected to racism and prejudice. But, you know, I'm thinking of like trouble man has a whole like brief subplot where he tracks down the white landlord and is like, you're going to pay for a hospital and you're going to, you know, fix the, the stairs and the whole thing that, that they are, you know, able to articulate and represent the desires of a community that is otherwise not afforded that privilege. Well, you're, you're totally right there. And it does, it's interesting to see how that can be applied then to, um, to, uh, uh, to the black exploitation films in this case. Uh, but is that, and then is that a, is that a core uh, a core element is that something that we can't like remove from the detect can we envision our private detective not operating in that that realm or not uh well i guess what i mean we've seen examples of that i would say which is because uh, this this came up i think a little bit in our conversation about um walk among the tombstones and uh gone baby gone and that those two detectives are not guys that can go anywhere um and because even you know setting those two aside the rest of the 21st century noir pis that we looked at do still kind of do that right like um with, Brick, with varying degrees with of varying degrees uh, uh, right but within their within their with, world Brick, exactly Brick certainly right? does yeah Brick, like within the world of the high school he moves through all strata with with abe applebaum he is he is within the world of the small town, he is moving through all strata with um, the the Shane Black movies. They are as likely to be dealing with pornographers as the head of the justice department. Like, and they have the same attitude towards everything. 
But when we deal with the those more like grounded, quote unquote, realistic, gritty movies, it takes that out. And then it is sort of like how, I don't know, do those feel less noir? Do those feel less successful as noir PI archetypes? Um, well, I, I think that, um, I think that Casey Affleck in, in Gone Baby Gone does feel a little less, it, less successful on, um, I, but I don't know. It's, I don't think it's trying to make him, um, make him that archetype either, Agreed. but by, by making him the, the inexperienced, um, inexperienced detective that is up against a bunch of, uh, a bunch of others who, who know the system inside and out by already positioning him against the, uh, against a law enforcement that is, um, that has a different kind of moral code than we've necessarily seen, uh, depicted before. I mean, it's already, it's already put it, positioning him in a different, uh, an entirely different light than, than we've kind of considered before. I don't know that there's enough, what, um, and even, even Liam Neeson still moves, moves through spaces with some, with, Does he? Because he only some... ever deals with like he's dealing with like rich people, but they're rich criminals, right? Like I don't think he ever deals right. with, uh, you know, like a. I don't it, get the it, sense that he couldn't though. Like, like you get the sense that Casey Affleck is limited. Like, yes. like that, that, that there are there are doors closed to him by his own inexperience, by by his own confines. But I, I don't doubt that Liam Neeson could move could move between those spaces if he if the narrative um, allowed him to. I don't know. I think he's he he feels again he feels grounded to me and so he feels much more positioned within his his milieu of like the new york cd underbelly like that's where he belongs whereas that's not how like sam spade or philip marlowe feels to me they they feel like they're just floating along no matter where they go Maybe well, but but by that, I guess by that outlook, because that is where the the film firmly grounds itself in um in walk uh walk among the tombstones. Is that so different than Joseph Gordon Levitt purely existing within the the high school route? Like obviously he's he's still confining himself there. I think the the film is just concerned with that world I, in that case. But but I think like Rick very consciously constructs an alternative world that maps those that hierarchy into a specific space and walk among the tombstones doesn't right it I, it doesn't feel like there's a power differential that he's dealing he's that he's ignoring when he's talking to the rich criminals like everybody is just sort of of a piece whereas Rick is honoring the noir tradition of like, you know, people who treat themselves as high status, but are, are, but are, who consider, they, who consider themselves high status, but are treated as equal status or low status by the, by the private eye. Fair. Um, and, and, and I think, and Brick, Brick is certainly a better film than Walk Among the Tombstones. And it's certainly a more fully realized, um, uh, 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 world building exercise in, in mapping that, that those, uh, tropes of classic noir onto the, the, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's well thought out. It's, it's kind of designed to transplant that, right? Um, whereas Walk Among the Tombstones, to your point, is, um, it is trying to be more grounded. I don't think it's not, not to the degree that, 
um, that Gone Baby Gone. For sure. Is, I mean, you still have, uh, what's his name, like, breathing into a phone and being like, yes, I'd love <laughs> to just go around and chop him up after I said I was going to give him back. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Right. And I, which is. It's a lot of fun, but, you know. I'll, I'll stand by my and walk among the tombstones as, uh, as a giallo. Kind yeah, of totally. Take, I, um, I, um, which. I'm not fighting you. Yeah, which again, um, I, you know, similarly concerns usually, um, usually prying into the darker pockets of, mm-hmm. of society. Um, so I, but I guess where that leaves us is, um, is, you know, we have, we have these, these few examples where the, the more the detective strays into a, a grounded, realistic, if you will, um, depiction of the, of the world, the more it concerns itself with that, does he move away from being that, that classic, that classic detective type? Or do you, do we think, what what do you think of uh, Casey Affleck is one of the farther off examples of that, that traditional detective that, that we saw. I think so. But I think in part, because I think in part, because that, instinct for being grounded works against one of the defining characteristics of noir, which is that it is heightened, right? Like, yeah. and it's heightened in different ways in different eras, but that it is, you know, there, there's an internal psychology that is being broadcast through the film medium and through the pulp excess, through the visual flourishes but something is is giving you this this more heightened, you know. That, that it's it's give it's giving you some cheap thrills, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with cheap thrills. <laughs> it, it, it pulp access, like you said, um, and and that manifests itself differently. I think noir is a is it may not even be a genre. If it is, it's a very flexible one. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're not, but I do think that they are sort of at the farthest reaches of. Like Gone Baby Gone, especially is like it feels like at the farthest reaches of what is still inclusive of noir, where it's it is trading on some of those archetypes, but it's also executing on those ideas in a way that that is not quite as compatible with with the core or the essence of noir. Yeah, I'm 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 curious too to to. Um, as we continue to view more films beyond this and to kind of, um, beyond the detective to wrap in noir itself too and, and kind of trace that across, across other themes and other, other seasons of their, other one-off films and whatnot. But, uh, but gosh, like thinking back on the, on the, on the, the forties and the fifties era here and, and what kind of grounds those films. Um, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of pulp thrills to it um there's uh there there's almost what's what's weird that is that is present there and i think that you chalk part of this up to bogart but um but there's more like there's more romance there there's more there's Mm -hmm. more actual there's there's almost more sexuality there than that gets lost in a ton, not all, but a lot of the the later noirs that we've seen. It just kind of seems to fall by the wayside, and I don't know if it's just because the it not everyone is Humphrey Bogart. Well, no, because uh, like the Mike Hammer movies have leads of varying abilities, up to and including uh, 
yeah. What's his face? <laughs> the, the the novelist. But the, oh God, <laughs> Spillane. <laughs> Mickey Spillane, not a man oh for movies. But uh, I mean, it was. I think I said in the, the episode, but it was it was a real like Michael Scott in yeah Danger no, Midnight or whatever Midnight Level <laughs> Danger Danger Level Midnight. Um, but those movies are still very much like they're trying to sell you. They're not as successful, but they are trying to sell you on the romance and the sex appeal of uh of these situations whereas uh and like you know and they are successful in kiss me deadly right like that is yeah that ending is like is them together um and you're rooting for it um and i think part of it is the you know i think especially well i don't know like you get some like inherent vice has has uh the, the there is real i, I think also, there is real spark between Catherine Waterston and, and Joaquin Phoenix. And there's I, I, spark, but there's also, I, I think there's also a distinction between like a sex scene and sexiness. Um, for example, Big Lebowski has, um, a, you know, or a Lebowski has, co- coital has, or post-coital, has but, uh, sex. <laughs> no one, sex. No one's calling it sexy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, um, but I don't think it's gone either, right? Or, or um, under the Silver Lake is obsessed with sex, um, which I think also something I didn't really get get really get into in that episode. But if you think about Andrew Griffith's yeah, character it's... kind of losing himself on the internet, then you know the pornography is being literalized by his fantasies of these beautiful women that he's around in LA. If if you accept my reading that none of it is real, um, but but so there there but there's, at the same time I think also like. Brick still has a sense of doomed romance to it, right? Like, so it's not a, it's not gone, but it's definitely not an instinct that people go to. I think the um, the rest of development of the kid detective speaks to the same instinct that's also like sex. Uh, that seems kind of risky to get into, and like sexiness. Uh, I don't know. And and I I guess you you can't divorce that from. From the classic noir era taking place during the code, during a time where where it, where innuendo and where where having um, having things that are left un, unsaid, left not made fully explicit, are, are is just is just part of the operating process. And and in the best examples of classic noir, in in your Bogart and Bacall coming together. You know, it really it 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 ignites, and it's something that that you you know walk away from those films taking away from. Uh, and 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 you know, as we as we cover other other noirs later on, like that's something that will keep coming up in films of that era. That you do feel that there's more there there's um, there's more uh, smoldering chemistry between between leads and things like that 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 just are I don't know. Uh, in shorter supply in, yeah. in more recent offerings, and not just in noir, but uh, the pendulum's got to right. swing back the other way. I, I hope. Yeah. All, all right, so um, we've we've rambled away a little from our. From uh, it's it's where, a loose. That's a, it's what we're here. We're <laughs> that's what it's we're here to do. Like we're we're going to talk about yeah. Exactly. Um, I um, uh, I I am. Wanting to talk about uh, the the detective being up against systems as as being something kind of inherent to 
to him throughout uh, throughout our entire run of the season. And this has manifested itself in different different ways. Of course, he's always kind of gotten an antagonistic relationship with with the police um, and that that shows up in different capacities. Um, but but we saw as we moved through the season um, that increasingly you have you have big um, society uh, encompassing plots like uh, like in like water in Chinatown like uh, the highway system in Who Framed Roger Rabbit things things like that 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 just feel so impossible for our detective to to take on they're big conspiracies but big business and government and um and and it concerns everyone and our detective is just the one that's getting to the root of it all yeah i mean that's a um you know as we talked about with chinatown that it really becomes a defining characteristic in the neo-noir and post-noir era of how how big the corruption becomes right like before that there is a suspicion of systems and there's a suspicion of um, the wealthy and the powerful, but it's more systemic on a thematic level, right? Where it's just sort of like, these are representational of this class of people and they've got problems and you can kind of extrapolate from there to, uh, to, to the rest of that group. But starting with Chinatown, it becomes text, right? It becomes text that, no, they are all in it together, and they are fucking us over. And what's fascinating, because both Chinatown and, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and, and Two Jakes, which, which pulls it, they, these are these are films that 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 set that take their setting um, from the past, that that move our protagonist back in time, even though they're they're filmed in the seventies, eighties, nineties, that. Um, that are concerned with these big issues, but that the, these are these are positioned within the classic noir era. And uh, um, and uh, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress. Devil in a Blue Dress. Yeah. And Farewell, My Lovely. I would say with the like kind of tries to incorporate a little bit with the gambling boat outside of uh, L.A. and and that that mobster is just so powerful, right? Totally. Um, and what I, what I think is fascinating then is to look at that because these are, these are films where they're up against that big, that big business, big government, um, conspiracy that is, that's affecting everyone and they're, they're trying to do something about it. And then you jump to the big Lebowski's and the inherent vices. Well, I think it's so, just to note about that too is yeah. that they're all period pieces. Right. And, uh, and, um, the good guys, the nice guys. Yep. I know it totally, totally fits within that, that framework too. And then you jump forward, you jump into the seventies, you jump into counterculture, you, uh, or what lingers on from there in the big Lebowski. And, and just to pull it back to what we talked about in the last episode, the bums lost. Mm -hmm. This is the, the system is still there. It's still working like it was meant to. It's still keeping people down, but that and and the conspiracies are still there. The, the like people are still getting fucked over, but uh, but the ability to do anything about it, almost the ability to care about it, because it's just something that you can't you can't physically affect anymore. It's just been ground out of you. Right. And like these these retro noirs, like like Chinatown, it feels like 
man against the system, trying to get to uncover some truth, flash forward and and we already know the truth. We know what this looks like. We know we can't do anything about it. It's there. It's a fact of life. Right. Well, you know, it, it becomes also. again absurdity, right? That it it is you 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 are in the face of an un, unmovable system that was there before you were born and will likely be there after you die. So all you can all you can do is is laugh at it. So so in the face of that, and looking at our more modern noir, is that is that optimistic? Is that pessimistic? Is is saying we can't do shit about the system, so let's just enjoy ourselves I mean, I and think laugh about these it? Are, what, these are these are pessimistic about change. Um, I, but I think there's also, not a lot of optimism. I mean, not that not that noir is exactly dripping right. with it, but um, but you know, you still have you. More... You can get the individual win in the classic right. noir era, um, in part because the noir private eye is the rare noir hero who is actually a hero and does not need to be punched under the haze code, right? Whereas so many of the other um, leading man archetypes were criminals or or somebody who had broken a moral code and so via the haze code had to be punished by the end of the movie these guys were ultimately on the side of the angels so they could get a, at least some kind of win, even if it was a, a Pyrrhic victory. But now it's just like, you don't even get that. Um, the, uh, what was the other thing I was just going to say? Uh, I don't know. If it's important, it'll come back to me. Oh, the, um, you know, I think something else that's interesting about it is that starting with the counterculture, the private eye becomes like that's where the private eye fits in, right? Like it makes that the, the private eye archetype totally translates into the stoner, the burnout, the, um, you know, if even, and even looking at other, like more outside the box options, the um, looking at Brendan and, and brick where he's the, the guy who doesn't sit with at any table, like that, that outcast outsider persona that starts off as sort of a working man identity continues to kind of translate in that way. Um, which, which I think is, is interesting and it suggests why so many of the, those, those films make that choice of, of having him be part of, of, because he can't be a, the man, right? Like that's the whole point of being the PI um, is that you've rejected to a certain degree, even Scudder in Walk Among the Tombstones, who's one of the straighter PIs that we meet, or not straighter, but, um, you know, more establishment is because he's a former cop. Even he's like, well, <laughs> I was really fucked up as a cop. So I stopped being a cop and now I operate outside the system. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, that, that feels like, like, like more than almost anything else. One of the, the, the defining bits of our, of our detective throughout throughout here he's always he's always got these other forces pushing and pulling he's got he's got society overall he's got law enforcement he's uh and and this is why we're this is not a season on on the police detective this is on this is on the private detective the police detective is is working within the system and he may he may be in pursuit of truth but he is still part of that that system whereas here we get to step outside it or representative corruption right i feel like a lot of the noirs ultimately end up delving into that that space, um, which also is unfortunately uh, aged very well. Uh, yeah, no kidding. 
um, it's very much with all of this, it's very much, uh, um, you know, rot at the center of the city, sometimes at the police force, sometimes at the powers that be, uh, forces pulling the strings, but inevitably time and time again, we have returned to that city being Los Angeles. Um, and that feels like, like the, the counterpart to our detective. And this is, this is of course present throughout noir in general. Um, we will be returning to Los Angeles over and over again. Uh, but our detective really has a special relationship with this city. And, and I don't know, why do you think, why Los Angeles? Aside from the fact that they are, that, that, that is where the movie factory is. Well, uh, I mean, certainly there, there is that, but even going back to the books, right? Like Marlowe and, and Chandler, uh, Chandler and, um, and Hammett were, were still, engaging with LA even before it was a, a, a factor of convenience for production needs. As I've talked about previously, I think part of it is the sprawl of LA. I think that like the actual geography of the city lends itself, as you said, to the labyrinth, um, that it, that it is, uh, a psychologically wide space that you can become lost in, in a way that does not feel the same in New York where you are cramped, or or Chicago, which is just so Midwestern. So if you're looking at, you know, the major U.S. cities, and then also demographically and historically looking at L.A. in the 40s as, a, you know, pre-war, post-war boom, as people moving west um, during the Depression, um, as a place that was exploding in population and was perceived as a place of, you could reinvent yourself. Like I, I think culturally and, um, and taking all into effect, all these factors, it, it is a space well suited for crime. And then for, you know, people to be employed to resolve those crimes in a, in a way that just does not feel the same in, in other locations that have more history and more established, um, forces both in the on the crime and on the um, policing side. Yeah, and I'll just add to all of that. I think that's beautifully said. Um, I'll just add to that over the cumulative effect throughout all of this, throughout all of these films, and throughout and throughout the history of of cinema in general, uh, is that L.A. has become a, a a character as much as 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 any as any detective, as any, as any other archetype, LA is a space that people have preconceived notions of. It fills a certain void. It appears over and over again. There are points that are recognizable. There are points that are unknowable. Um, but it is vast. It is, it is something that, um, that feels, I think, to a lot of people, especially in cinematic terms, like a dream. It mm -hmm. does not feel like a real space. Yeah, that's a great point too. And it, and it lends itself to that more expressive interpretive element of noir that is heightened. Um, I mean, what did you think of, you know, so let's see, we went, we had one in Florida, one in New Orleans, one in Boston, a couple in New York, setting aside the international entries, which are kind of, you know, obviously its own context and thing, like in terms of the U.S. Yeah, non-LA um, entries. No, um, they, uh, okay. I, I think that's a, a really great way to contrast. Um, I, um, I actually, I really liked how 
um, just despite it not I'm not you know putting it maybe in the total classic territory, but I liked how Drowning Pool mapped it onto New Orleans. I thought actually mm. the the New Orleans area and the way that it was used in that film really nicely mirrored what they did in the Inland Empire. Um, sure. It's a lot of moving between spaces. Sometimes it's in New Orleans. Sometimes it's out at a plantation or at a bayou. And I thought it, I thought it yeah. kind of got, it went after that. And I think it achieved it on that, on that level. No, I don't point. think it, it helps that it gets out of the city. I think if it stayed purely in New Orleans, it would exactly. have felt maybe a little stranger, but yeah, that it, it kind of like dips in and dips out. As it, needed. I think it played that really well. Um, Night Moves, which I loved. Um, which was I mean, one of my favorite like new watches of the time. It's still in LA. It, it's still partly in LA, and it, when it is in Florida, it's such a, a narrow focus that yeah. it doesn't. It, it's not going after that same thing to me. I, I think that's, that's a, a great film, but it doesn't have the same ambitions. I don't think that. Um, I don't think that Gone Baby Gone uh, goes goes after that aesthetic necessarily i don't know but I'm, i've never been to boston so i can't even i can't even really speak on the texture uh, yeah, the of the east city. coast ones in general just feel a little grammier and more claustrophobic and, which and is, new york makes sense like, like the new york the shaft, boston ones yeah shaft new uh, new york noir well, is its own thing i, I, I think, well i think right? also the black exploitation is its own thing as opposed to either jury or um walking the tombstones or there's one other new york one um and of course, we also had one small town one, right? We had um, the Kid Detective, which was yeah. Any Town USA. I think that that, um, much like like Brick, I think that they take their own kind of built world and uh, and and I think make it work to that. I mean, you know, I, I'd say that I say the Kid Detective is pretty successful in terms of in terms of creating that multi dimensional uh, noir space. It does. It does move between the the early vision of the town and then the the like stark reality of what it's like as he grows up and mm-hmm. uh, and and I think all within within what the film is going after I think it's it's yeah, yeah pretty true. successful. So we started talking about like you know geographic trends across the series. What what are some of the other trends that that you see emerging as as that now that we've watched you know fifty movies. Well, okay. So one of the, one of the biggest ones um, is is the we saw we saw some move to like the detective the detective as a team um, and and like what that how that sets apart from a lot of the earlier detectives that it's this is not true in all of the the more recent ones but certainly in in the nice guys. Or, um, or even in the Big Lebowski, you see the 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 detective is not all on his own. Um, or in uh, in uh, zero effect, um, I I'm curious what that what that means in terms of the of how we've kind of shaped our detective because when uh, when he's no longer alone. Um, does that take away some of the danger? Oh, and uh, obviously, um, the other shame, obviously, uh, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And, and, and what does that do? The elephant god too. Um, what does that do when, when we all of a sudden have a team? I feel like the danger, the act of being an observer gets limited a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, uh, his world is, uh, and our, your world as the, 
viewer is expanded a little bit. You've got multiple characters by which to which you're identifying and kind of following along. Yeah, it's definitely a recent trend. I do feel like it's perhaps also drawing from, I mean, A, I think it, on a narrative level, it's just easier, right? Like there's a relationship that the movie is now built around rather than relying on a detective. And, and maybe also this is why we've moved away from romance is that the romance has been supplanted by the relationship amongst peers in the, in the detective group. Yeah. And it's either, it, it's drawing on one of two or concurrently things. It's either Holmes and Watson mm-hmm. or it's buddy cop, right? Yeah. Like it's that those, and, and sometimes kind of together. Um, it, and it, like if, if they're partners, then they can both be at all of the scenes, right? Whereas like, if you go back to the romantic lead, it would be like, they'd have a scene with them and then to go off and do some, some investigating and they come back and touch base again. Whereas here, you know, um, John Goodman goes with him to do the handoff and goes with him to interrogate the kid and, and goes with it, like forces himself on, on, uh, the dude to, to deal with all this stuff. Or, uh, you know, Mouse shows up in, in Devil in a Blue Dress and he's like, who do you want me to shoot? And just follow him around and like be in his back, you know, so like, uh, from just from a narrative point of view, it gives you more options in a scene and more tools and allows you to develop that relationship further. As opposed to Maltese Falcon, which which pretty much immediately dispatches with his partner. Um, and he's with his partner's wife and yep. uh, does not give a shit about him. No, um, such such a contrast to to classic noir's approach to it, and and if anything, that that move toward team dynamic does does step it away from that classic detective a bit for me. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't make it not noir necessarily. It doesn't make it not a classic private eye, but it, but some something gets something thematically. I feel like gets lost in that translation. Uh, Yes, fair. I mean, even yeah, thinking about, thing. you know, like there's a transition period in the 60s and the 50s to 70s, I'd say, where you've got, you do have more of a supporting team around the detective, but they're still very minor players. So like all the my camera movies have the um, His Girl Friday character, but she's just back at the office, except for the last one where she disappears and she becomes a little bit more important. Or Chinatown, like he has a whole support staff in that office including other detectives who help do some of the footwork but none of them are really characters right they're all kind of right. although some of them come back for the two jakes where like they were like aren't you excited well, and, to see and so-and-so detective again? bureau like, two three did the same thing yeah um, we, we had a we had a supporting team there but it still um, it still keeps the focus so tight on the private eye right. and what the private eye is going through and i would say um i would say actually that like Gone Baby Gone and A Walk Among the Tombstones does something similar where there is a bit of a supporting team, Michelle Monaghan in Gone Baby Gone or the kid in Walk Among the Tombstones who then gives a little support, adds a little like emotional depth to it, but then also kind of disappears for long stretches. Yeah, and I don't know how much of that is like just the, I mean, naturally, we like a team. We like a team coming together. We like people... Um, working with each other, uh, it, it it's the in, in to put it in Western terms though it's it's high noon versus Rio Bravo. It's uh, sure. is the is it the detective standing alone against the world or is 
the detective um, finding finding those other good people out there that that will have his back and and help him when when things get rough. Yeah, I mean, I think that that points to what you're saying about theme. I I think also it comes back to the serialization of source material, um, which I think is another trend that you see over time, and that you know, as we've talked about before on the show. The classic pulp fiction that is and hard boiled novels that are being drawn on for the early and the classic era noir like Maltese Falcon, like the the Chandler adaptations. There's no continuity; it's all resets, or it's it is truly a standalone. Um, Whereas by the time you get to the '90s and the the books that are being adapted at that point. Though that source material is designed to be a book series that you want to keep reading the next book to see what happens to that guy and the characters that accumulate around him. And so you see it with Mouse in Devil in a Blue Dress. You see it with the kid in uh, Walk Among the Tombstones. You see it with, uh, you know, the fact that the nice guys was going to be a TV show. Like, these are built on ongoing dramatic relationships that have conflict that is not resolved at the end of the the story so that you want to see what happens in that relationship in the next movie or the next installment, even though the mystery has been resolved. And and I think that that speaks to, I don't know, we just in modern, in modern terms, we like, we like the, the, the thing that is bingeable. We like the thing mm-hmm. that we can, we can take in in a small installment and then, and carry that story on, but have a, have just enough of a break. Um, that, that is, that feels like the, the, the way that entertainment has kind of shaped toward the, the, the modern entertainment mindset. Yeah. Uh, also, this is a quick, not uh, corrections is more of a, um, mea culpa. Uh, at one point, I, so a behind the scenes, I do the editing, so I have to listen to myself talk a lot. Um, and so at some point, I voice the opinion of like, well, what makes the noir detective work is that it feels like a standalone. It feels like there's something at stake for the character, and so it is important. Um, and that that is what helps make noir feel noir. But uh, that opinion for me has changed as we've gotten deeper into the nineties and later adaptations that are dealing with this more serialized stepping into a sto- ongoing story feeling. And I've realized like, well, no, those still feel like noir, even though there is that sort of sense of like, we'll see you again next week to, to I had flagged that to, um, I had flagged that too, as a thing that I wanted to, to call out. Cause I felt like early you on to call out Fred's bullshit. No, mine. I, I, I was, I, I, I feel like I was also, like kind of uh, on board the the um the detective as uh, as someone who's got a, a like a core flaw that that is kind of um gnawing at them that that you know it, it's not it's not the their arc necessarily but it's going to kind of be present and that they're I, I i i feel like that is in taking this all in together i i do not think that is uh to me uh it is not it's not the, the detective is universally uh beyond reproach it they they may have they may have some character defects here and there that are built in but i don't think that there's this like tragic flaw necessarily that that is inherent to all of them um nor do i think that's uh that's something that that universally is is necessary to i weirdly 
I, I feel like I, I'm increasingly kind of coming around to this thought of it's the detective, the detective against the narrative itself. Yes. And the, the detective is at the whim of this narrative that's going to pull him into the next thing and the next character that's going to emerge out of the woodwork. And, and it's almost an, like, like the, the, the classic detective story just has so many familiar beats. And by so many, I mean so many. There are, by, by its nature, there's just a lot of plot that is burning through. And the detective is struggling to keep afloat through everything that the, that the story will throw at him. Well, as we rescind our definitive statements, then let's get into what we can still say is true of the private eye, right? Like what has remained consistent? Like largely, he's got his uh, his daily rate plus expenses, usually in the range of about fifty to one hundred dollars, maybe twenty five uh, to one hundred. Yeah, he's uh, the the detective is the detective is someone who is um, who who has to be relatable to the people. This is why we moved beyond the William Powell, the gentleman detective. And, and I'm glad we we kind of set that up at the outset um, as a as a contrast because um, because beyond William Powell, our our detective is is someone who feels of the people, who feels uh, blue collar to a to a degree. Um, you know, not um, not someone who not someone who is sitting high up in a in a penthouse apartment um, with his beautiful wife and uh, and and fancy dog. Um, drinking constantly. Um, maybe he's drinking constantly, but he doesn't have those other things. He doesn't have that other stabilizing factor on his on his life, like uh, like Nick and Nora Charleston do. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. That it is that that accessibility thing, and I think that it goes back to what we're talking about how it moves from this working class hero to the counterculture. To you know, it's not just that he's an outsider, but he's also a little bit of an underdog, right? Like he's always up against forces that are stronger and better than him or bigger than him. And so that there's there's that feeling of risk and possibility of loss. Like you never really are worried about um William Powell in no. The Thin Man, which is part of the fun. I I, I love right. the Thin Man, but that is not what that movie's trying to do or those stories are trying to do. No, not at all. Whereas whereas there is a there is an inherent sense of danger um throughout. Um, gosh, um, I, I feel like, um, I feel like I, you, like, we can't in this discussion ignore the, the Bogart factor and how much pivots around him. I, um, I, I walk away from this whole season though, um, being both, uh, both of totally convinced of his influence and his status and aware that no one else can quite touch that mm-hmm. but um but if anyone if but if anyone comes close um it's it's Elliot Gould and Jack Nicholson because they also are um are the the joker right they are they they have that mischievous edge to them that allows them to push back at the world and laugh a little at it yeah but they're also still and, and part of this is just changing uh changing of style and acting process and tradition but like they're still playing people and bogart isn't to a certain degree like bogart and his spade and his marlowe are iconic and iconoclastic not just because he's playing them and obviously he brings a lot to the table but also 
the characters as characters are not going back to the, the the keynote at the start. Those those characters really are existing in that demigod space of like absolute figures who arrive and who set the world right through their power, which in this case is quick hand and a sardonic wit. And and because you can't to take and two different examples masculinity too for despite his uh, de- despite the way he moves through the world and and is able to laugh at it you can't picture Bogart shopping for cat food like no. Elliot Gould and despite the fact that that the only other the only other detective I uh, probably debatable but the the detective that we've seen that I think most closely hits on Bogart's cool factor is is Paul Newman's Harper and that's just because he's Paul Newman yeah. but you also can't see you can't see Bogart waking up in his underwear right. at the start of a movie like there there's just certain things that Bogart feels um partly because of the times partly because of who he is untouchable he's just he's he is that that original archetype i think also then looking to the other end of the spectrum and where we're at now we talked a little bit about Garfield's character in Under the Silver Lake, obviously being sort of this commentary on where where American masculinity gets you, which is this entitled creep. Um, but setting that commentary aside, I think it's interesting that our three millennial PIs are all like thin former ingenues who don't look like they could really put up a good fight, you know, like, <laughs> like Garfield, right, well, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, Adam Brody are all like, not the, and not that like uh, Bogart was a big guy, but Bogart presented in red as like yeah. a guy with like, he, that he was solid. And, and these guys do not, give that feeling off at all intentionally so so if if jean-paul belmondo and breathless can look at bogart and and imitate him and still be cool and and still carry that over you can't imagine andrew garfield and under the silver lake doing the same thing it just doesn't it it, no. it doesn't work it collapses on itself no i think part and not so much brick because it's about high schoolers and so they are kind of like playing at being adults but more so with the kid detective and with um, on Civil Lake, both of those are dealing with arrested development in different ways, and yeah. so I th- and so I think that plays into it too. That it is this like they have not developed into men these characters, and so and so it makes sense to also cast them as these guys who do not read as as having lived life to that in that in that way. I am fascinated by what kind of shape. Um, noir is going to take from here for, for millennials, for Gen Z, for, for, uh, you know, what, what is, who, who do we put forward as the detective? What do we see from here on out? Because, because I just, be a superhero like, movie. I, oh, I'm sure that's already, uh, probably, but no, I mean, like, who is even, like, but, what, who, who has that Bogart? quality, right? Like, like right, who, who, or even a Gould or a Jack Nicholson, like, what, like, just, just in terms of not, not even like the star making apparatus of Hollywood and how that's withered over the last 20 years, but just, just thinking about like the male leads of today and how they read on screen 
who can do that? I mean, like, so Charlie Hunnam had a, and this is, uh, we'll get into this, but Charlie Hunnam had a, P, a PI Hollywood movie that came out last year and it like went straight to video on demand and we did not really talk about it because it kind of went without a, a trace. But, you know, I mean, just in terms of how he reads on screen, I think he is kind of in the right vicinity of that kind of thing as opposed to, I don't know, like Tom Hardy maybe? Yeah, I um, know it's a that's a a good question, one that I have not grappled with. Um and 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 the thing is like the, the there aren't there aren't a bunch of usual suspects that are coming to mind, but I do think that that's where you have to look into the the not the the usual suspects and I think that that's the direction that um that that noir really need, the detective specifically the private detective really needs to go to kind of freshen things up because let's face it looking back on this entire season it's been very white very male and uh and 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 you know with a few with with a few noteworthy and and good exceptions but uh but man we're starved for perspective here yeah i actually was saying that uh jonathan majors i think would be a great Oh, I can see that. Absolutely. I think he... He reads smart, he reads soulful, but also, like, he's got the physical presence. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I think that's spot on. Huh. Um, well, I'm going to be thinking about that for sure. Yeah, Um, we'll have to, if, if you're so moved, you know, send us an email, uh, um, we have an email address. I don't think we've ever said it, but cellularlydirt at gmail.com is us. So, you know, if you want to, send us your suggestions of who you think is a, a modern actor. Something else, Natasha Leone's uh, Poker Face, obviously is more of the Columbo tradition, but I think talking about the, like, Joker chaos agent aspect of, like, she'd be a good Elliot Gould Um descendant when it comes to the the pi tree what's what's fascinating too is that like is is, um is is in the case of our three millennial detectives i think all of them would have the capacity to be to be played in a different way Mm. right um i i mean i think they do i think all of them possess that like that they they could have that joker kind of knack to them um if if they were being used in that way, but I, I don't. That's true. Uh, it, it part of it's just like culturally where we are and also like where we are with our storytelling traditions and what audiences want. Like all that is, is a factor in it too, for sure. I, um, I'm, I'm putting forward Dev Patel. I think, um, I, 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 I one, I just like the guy, but I, um, I think that he's got, um, yeah. after the green night, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got some range. He's still, he, but he's still, he does that while still fitting firmly into that millennial camp without, without sacrificing what generationally I think, um, I think that, that, that he brings to it. But yeah, after, after Green Knight, I mean, I want, I want him to, to continue flexing in, oh, for in sure. unexpected yeah. roles. Hopefully that, that gives him a little extra, uh, oomph. Uh, all right. I mean, is there anything else they want to talk about in terms of what we did watch? Um, and, uh, we haven't, um, we haven't covered this in this episode yet, but I, um, I would be remiss if I did not call out the, um, the best new film I watched this entire 
um, this entire season, oh. and and I have you to thank for that, Fred. But um, Yokohama BJ Blues is um, is a hell of a movie. Everyone should watch it. Um, that and Night Moves probably were my two favorite. Uh, and Murder My Sweet. Those were those, those three. I really re- were ones I watched for the first time for this that I really liked. But um, but if I had to pick my my favorite, it was Yokohama BJ Blues. Uh, yeah, I agree. All those three new to me. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, the probably the m- most well known one that had been a gap in my viewing uh, was uh, um, Kiss Me Deadly. Oh. Uh, and oh right, you hadn't seen Kiss Me Deadly before. Yeah. Totally oh. lived up to the hype. So glad I got to see it. But that's like a you know that's already on a lot of lists. Stuff that's a little bit more under the radar. Murder My Sweet, uh, Yokohama BJ Blues, and uh, and also Harper. I think Harper. It's not as good as, yeah, as so, those movies, but it's no, such but it's, a great Paul so, Newman performance. Great, and, great Paul Newman flick, for sure. And it's, it is still important to the overall, like, that trend line of, um, we didn't get into it too much in this episode, but we talked about it last episode a lot, the uh, the weird L.A. subset of, of noirs, and, and Harper is key to that, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, to- that fits right in there. Um, and on the flip side, there was... A lot of movies that we did not watch. So I've mentioned before our list of our our list in totality of of noir films. Uh, we're up past four thousand. We're closing in on forty one hundred. Um, we have not indexed all of them, so probably about half. So there's still uh, of that four thousand or so. Half of them we don't even know what they're about. Who knows? Um, we're we're kind of prioritizing based off of popularity, off of ratings on internet sites like letterboxd um off of lists of like the most important stuff and, and just going off of that so but we love recommendations so yes. <laughs> please please um let us know if you have things that you think are, are blind spots that you're seeing um or things you just like to hear us cover yeah i mean so first just some movies that we didn't cover for a specific reason because we we're going to cover them later right so vertigo like huge movie Hugely important, but we ultimately felt it made more sense in other contexts than in the private eye specifically. Uh, there's a lot of um, sci-fi or fantasy or horror-related movies that we that we didn't cover that that fit in with the private eye. So, um, Alphaville, um, Angel Heart, uh, I, and 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 I am I am both. Like I'm sad that we didn't cover Alphaville, and yet also happy that we finally we actually got to include a a female detective in here. Uh, right. But but that's another that's another thing where if um if any if anyone wants to direct us to some great um uh, some great female noir cinema um that that feels like it's been a gap throughout the the season a major gap and uh, and not for lack of trying to uncover some. There's a, I swear to God, if anybody knows what this movie is, I, there's a movie that was released in sometime between like 2008 and 2010 that was in black and white. It had a female lead. It was like a noir pastiche, but it was also about like mathematical theorems. I swear to God, I saw a trailer for this. And then could, I've Googled it multiple times as we got ready for and then recorded this season. I could not find it. So if you know what this movie is, or maybe it's just a short film or even just like a mock trailer, I don't know. But if it rings a bell, 
put me out of my misery. Send us an email. Let me know what it was. You know, let me know it's not the Berenstein Bears effect and I'm just making this up and it's, you know, an alternate uh, timeline coming into effect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of, um, like, Witch Hunt uh, is another horror, like, Lovecraft detective one. There's quite a few of those that we kind of are saving for this genre um, entry. There's a few 80s noirs that we didn't get to that I was hoping we would. Um, there's a there's an I, the Jury remake in the 80s that's supposed to be pretty good that I haven't seen. Um, there's a, uh, a really fun um, noir, Kill Me Again, in the 80s that's like a really solid B-movie um, that, that I wish we'd, we'd had room for, but it just... Like it, it does the thing, but it it didn't really bring anything new to the conversation, so we ended up not covering it. Um, some more recent, yeah, oh yeah, you know, I was gonna, there's a there's a whole range of of TV that we didn't even oh yeah, I mean um, like begin to um, Veronica Mars we just skipped over for uh, uh, Jessica uh, Jones, Jessica uh, Jones, and uh, uh, and Singing Detective and things like things that would be firmly in the the wheelhouse of what we're we're talking about, but the the you know to the scope of folding series into this was just beyond what we were were taking on for the season. Right. Um, also, there's a there's two great uh, John Hawks detective movies that came out in the last ten years or so that are again like they weren't big enough for in, had enough to like new to bring to the table for us to cover. But uh, Small Town Crime is really good. And uh, too late is is just a really solid John Hawks Why, performance. I love John Hawks. Why haven't I watched these? They were super. These are like super small indie noir releases that are very under the radar. Too late. I was probably filmed for like one hundred fifty thousand dollars or something dumb like that. I mean, it's not, not not that little, but it's it is. Too late is like this a chronological story of this PI trying to find somebody but it's um done in like five or six single uh shot takes that are take place at different like years apart from each other so it was it was filmed uh, it was filmed in like seven days or something like that but over two years as they got funding together um so uh, and it stars uh in addition to john hawks it stars um the uh counselor slash psychiatrist from severance um that turns out to be uh spoilers his 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 oh, oh yeah. um 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 uh Chen Lachman. yes yeah. yeah it was like one of her big breaks was being huh. in this movie anyway i small town crimes highly small town crime highly highly recommend um so there's a whole you know array of these these movies that uh, we've probably covered about a third of the potential PI movies. I mean, ones that I haven't seen, but we, we just couldn't figure out Hickey and Boggs is supposed to be very good. Um, there was the, uh, uh, maybe not good, but the, uh, the Frank Sinatra PI movies that we ended up not covering from the sixties, um, Tony Rome and lady in cement, right. which I am curious to watch. <laughs> I don't think we necessarily missed anything, but I, I am curious to watch. Um, and then we've, there was, oh, oh, and there was a, um, what was the first one of these? I think it's this one. So there was a collection. There's three movies that were these super low budget Japanese indies that are riffs on Mike Hammer. And the lead character's name is Mike Uhama. 
Oh my and, god. Um, I, I like real low budget affairs, but very good supposedly. I, I really want to track these down and watch these. But again, it was just sort of the thing where we were like it it didn't have enough to say for the genre or didn't have enough a big enough impact to be able to really say like this is where things are or where things have been changed. So it, it didn't quite make the cut. Uh, something that we we may or may not do, but there's a uh, as we did mention that there's a Liam Neeson Marlowe movie coming out. Uh, I don't know this week, um, so we may try and do a little extra special episode, um, and we may try to do a like over the hill detectives combo. So there was a uh, Poodle Springs, which is a um, James Con Marlowe adaptation that was a uh, like. HBO movie. Um, and it's not a Chandler. It's one of the later ones, just like this Marlowe is also a later uh, Marlowe novel that was not really written by Chandler, um, but was approved by the estate. And then um, in addition, there were these two earlier uh, movies from the 70s that are, um, or not from the 70s, but there was uh, The Late Show, uh, which was Art Carney and um, uh oh my god what's her name from frankie and grace but not fonda tomlin lily tomlin yeah lily tomlin like uh the and it's art carney just going around and dealing with other pis and like um it's supposed to be pretty good and then twilight is uh would actually be kind of an interesting um crossover from our uh south of the mason dixon episode because it's uh late era um paul newman and uh uh uh, oh god i'm really it's late i'm and i had a drink so i'm i'm really blanking but uh what's his name from night moves um gene hackman gene hackman the two of them and and uh if, it, a, it's like a a kind of like a if um his harper character had continued to age which uh there's also supposed to be upcoming a new harper movie uh from the coens maybe there's a rumor that they might be adapting one of the other Harper novels under the original Archer name rather than Harper. Um, and then there's supposed to be a Chinatown prequel series starring uh, uh, that human brick house. Uh, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. <laughs> so, you know, there's some interesting stuff coming up. We may revisit this. We may do some standalone episodes if we're so moved or find a good pairing with something new. Like I said, there was that new... Um, uh, uh, detective movie that just came out in the last couple months, um, set in LA with, uh, uh, but it, it, the supporting cast includes Mel Gibson. So it was kind of like, well, yeah. Mm. Um, but anyway, there's plenty of movies that we missed, but we love that we want to shout out. There are plenty of movies that we didn't get to watch that we're interested in watching. If, and like Tristan said, if there's anything that we missed that you're like, you dummies this is something you should be paying attention to send it our way. Cause we always want to watch more movies. It's been such a joy finding these new movies to fall in love with. So uh, further recommendations are, are welcome and, and encouraged. Um, okay. So caveats aside, let's talk about what we did watch. Uh, favorite detectives go. Oh, well, Bogart clearly, but also, um, Elliot Gould. 
in <laughs> in Long Goodbye. I I think I mean Bo- Bogart of course is wonderful, but I um I I think Gould in in as Marlowe in Long Goodbye is just one of my one of my favorite performances that we've encountered across the entire series. Love him in that. Love Altman. Love that movie to death. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Those two. Uh, uh, Bridges in Big Lebowski. Um, yeah. and then, uh, and then, yeah, Gene Hackman in, in Night Moves is like yeah. oh, a really G- soulful G- performance. It, Gene Hackman is, is great in Night Moves. That, um, yeah, definitely, like, like I mentioned, one of, one of the finds of the, the season for sure. Uh, oh, and uh, actually for the finds, another one, Trouble Man. I thought Trouble Man, like Shaft, it's great. I, it doesn't need our I'd support. Seen, I'd seen Shaft before. I had not seen Trouble Man. And, and, but Trouble and Man was just so much, much fun. Like, that was that was a great, great movie. Um, and as I said, I I would have I would watch 20 more Denzel Washington movies with him as Ezekiel Rollins. Like, that would have been, would have been great. Yeah. Oh, clearly. Um, all right. Well, well. Um, and the flip side. Um, oh. Favorite ooh. movies. Favorite movies. Is it the same list or are there any that you're like, I love the movie, the detective isn't as much of a standout? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, if you, if you told me to pick my favorite movie out of all of the ones that, that I watched this season, um, I, ugh, I mean, I might, I might say the thin man, but that feels like that's not, that's, that's cheating. Um, picking you off the podcast. But, um, but, uh, but, and, and I probably before, before having watched, uh, gone through everything again, I probably would have said the big Lebowski just cause I have seen it so many times and I do love it to pieces and it is, it is really great. But honestly, um, uh, both long goodbye and Chinatown hold up as much as I expected them to long goodbye, even more than I had expected it to. Um, so those are probably my two, like outright masterpieces that I feel like I that that I revisited but there's just so much good Kiss Me Deadly is so great I was gonna say that's uh, probably the one and obviously it was new Kiss to me, me but the one that I thought about the most is probably Kiss Me Deadly like that is just it's just the it, it, everything kind of comes to a head there all classic noir and all the pulpiness and the hard-boiled it just it just boils over the top and it's it's a glorious thing yeah I mean ending. yeah Big Sleep Long Goodbye Chinatown Roger Rabbit, Big Lebowski, like those are all top tier movies. Mm-hmm. But Kiss Me, and, there's something about Kiss Me Deadly, and in part in watching this whole series of movies, that it has just really lingered with me. Well, maybe maybe what it is is that because because Chinatown is a swing for the fences kind of movie, as is Roger Rabbit. Big Lebowski, in comedic terms, does kind of the same thing. Long goodbye doesn't it's that's more that that achieves something on on its own terms on a much on lower key terms and 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 i i think should be set aside uh uh, for recognition on that reason but but what what kiss me deadly does so well is it just embraces the lowbrow it embraces the pulp factor it delivers all of those cheap thrills and it does so with such confidence um that uh, it just feels like like this this is this is everything coming together in the perfect blend um i i don't know you can't recreate that it's it's its own wonderful object um well as we're closing out it's been it's been a really amazing season and 
Fred, I'm grateful to have gotten to go along on, on this with you. And and listeners, uh, uh, whoever is out there, thank you for, for putting up with us throughout. All dozens all of you. Oh, I know. Um, we, we promise there's more in store. Uh, we're looking forward to continuing to explore noir in whatever form that may be. We are cooking up another season as we speak, so there'll be something coming down the line eventually. And hopefully between now and then, some standalones. So keep, keep, keep an ear open. Exactly. Um, so thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest and grittiest of genres. You can find us online, CelluloidDirt.com, and on Letterboxd under the handle CelluloidDirt. We'll see you next time. Until then, may viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at Incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>